Hi, and thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, ahead of the 50th BMO Vancouver Marathon, we speak to Jody Wilson-Raybould, who will be running the full 26 miles on Sunday, about why she took on the challenge and the good cause that she's raising funds for in memory of her late grandfather. We look into a new global news survey that shows that more than 60% of Canadians who don't own a home now believe it is unlikely they ever will. What does that reveal? What can be done to address it? We ask the founder of Generation Squeeze. We speak to a Russian investigative journalist about what's going on inside Russia's security services these days, given the military failures in Ukraine. And could they be pushing Vladimir Putin to become even more aggressive? But first, with a new protest rolling into Ottawa this weekend, we find out who's behind it and if police there are better prepared to make sure there is no repeat of the convoy that blockaded downtown Ottawa for weeks this past winter. But let's start tonight with a soundtrack of a different kind in Ottawa, one perhaps that people were there at least were hoping not to have to hear again, the sounds of protest. Uh, They've been bracing for an event of a different kind. It's already underway tonight. Hundreds of motorcycles and other vehicles are expected to roll into the nation's capital this weekend for what organizers say will be a peaceful celebration of, quote, freedom. The event called Rolling Thunder Ottawa has raised concerns about a repeat of that trucker convoy, we all remember that, uh, that paralyzed the city for weeks over the winter. Here's what it sounded like in front of the Rideau Centre, that's right downtown, down the street from Parliament Hill, but a fair ways uh, this evening. doesn't that sound familiar? Um, The organization behind the protest has partnered with several groups apparently linked to the so-called Freedom Convoy from the past winter. The group hasn't really been clear about what they're rallying for, but protesters say that it's pretty much similar to what was happening back in the winter. They say they plan to leave on Sunday. Already tonight, police are tweeting that due to an escalation of crowd aggression, officers were deployed with helmets and shields in order to clear the crowds at Rideau and Sussex, what we were just hearing from there. Uh, Several arrests have been made, apparently. Police remain on scene. Now, many residents in downtown Ottawa, keep in mind, this is an area, this isn't the rich part of Ottawa. This isn't Rockcliffe, where the politicians live or where the prime minister did live. Um, This is sort of where people who work or go to school in Ottawa, that's where they live. That's where the normal folk in Ottawa live. So needless to say, they're not so happy about having the horns back. Mary Huang is the president of the Centertown Community Association. A lot of them are concerned. Some are scared and some are mad because it's, uh, it's beyond what a lot consider reasonable. Well, Ottawa's interim police chief is telling organizers and participants of uh, the protest that they will be held accountable for their actions. Here's Steve Bell. We've been really clear. We're not going to we're not going to tolerate any sort of unlawful activity that indicates any sort of longer term uh, occupation of any area of our city. We will be very responsive and very proactive in identifying and dismantling any sort of circumstances like that. That's Ottawa's interim police chief, Steve Bell. Well, joining me now from Ottawa is Michael Kempa. He's an associate professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa and someone who has kept a very close watch on the events of this year so far, 2022. Hard to imagine this has all happened just since February. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. So what is the mood in Ottawa tonight? Certainly there was a lot of anticipation. A lot of anticipation and tension, uh, in fact. I mean, people are very much waiting to see whether this thing will be easily managed by the police, whether it will clear out in a reasonable period of time, or if more numbers of protesters may show up tomorrow on Saturday to make the situation more difficult. That memory of the crowd swelling on the weekends back in January and February has really um, set a lot of people on edge in Ottawa. I can imagine. Um, Certainly, the interim police chief is sounding a much stronger or stricter sounding line. Uh, Police seem infinitely more prepared this time. Is that about right? Definitely. In a lot of ways, it's not about the police getting any new authorities or powers or capacities, but remembering the very same things that they've always had. The police have always had the ability to control the flow 
of traffic during times of major protest. They've done it every year for Canada Day, shutting off the central business district to vehicular traffic. But of course, with COVID and a period of relative calm in our society, a long period of time with only isolated protests, we've almost forgotten how to do all of this. It was a big awakening in January and February, and the rust is off. We're now seeing much more normal policing response to these types of protest movements. For those of us who may have turned our eyes away from Ottawa a bit since the end of those winter protests, since the end of the blockade, what kind of fallout has there been through all this, specifically for the police, but also for the city? I mean, there were a lot. There was a lot of finger pointing back, uh, back in February. Well, there's finger pointing all around, and I sure understand it. I mean, people are saying, "How did this happen? Who's to blame? How did things escalate to the point that we had an occupation that went on for weeks and weeks and weeks?" I really get that. But the thing that we've been saying all along is even when our streets were cleared in Ottawa, there was a bigger problem that didn't go away. And that's there's about a million people across Canada who are seriously angry with the state system. They are willing to listen to many more extreme messages coming from organizers that have an interest in fanning up these types of protests for their own political purposes. So whether we find blame or somebody did something wrong with the last protest, it doesn't fix the problem that there's a million people who will organize and have different forms of convoys and confrontational protests unless we find a way to pull people back into the mainstream of our political system. Michael, what do we know about the Rolling Thunder event this week and, and how allied it is or how close it is to what happened over the, uh, over the winter and, and the groups that were involved in, that, in those protests? Pretty close. And this is a big lesson for Canadians, and that's that Far-right activist movements are typically not very long-lived. They mutate, they transform. It's the sort of same groups of fellow travelers that just coalesce around different issues that are bothering people at a moment in time. So for a while, it was vaccine mandates. This time around, the messaging is much more muddled because obviously many of the vaccine mandates have been repealed. So they move around, they change the name, Leadership comes and goes. It gets arrested or taken out of circulation. The next tier of leadership moves forward. This is what we'll continue to see. We're not fighting a simple group of people who are out to get us. It's a social movement that has to be addressed through sensible state action. Michael, what do you think that looks like? I mean, there are a lot of people out there, obviously politicians who are speaking to some of the same uh, sentiments that we're seeing amongst uh, those who are gathered this weekend. They've been gathered here in Victoria, where I am. Over weekends, it stopped now, but for several weekends in a row, they were gathered here. Uh, what do you think needs to be done to be able to try and find some way to, to build a bridge to those who are so angry with the system that they would essentially disrupt a capital city yet again, and in this case, you know, risk arrest, risk confrontations with the police? I think the biggest thing is, on the far, far right, there are many attitudes that a democratic state simply can't do business with. So we're talking, if we're talking about racism, or if we're talking about a completely intolerant immigration policy, these are things that are non-starters for a democratic state. But a little bit less to the far right, there are a lot of people who are just very angry with what they see as a globalized system where jobs have dried up and been sent to lower income countries to do our labor for a lower price, excluding Canadians from international markets. We may not agree with these views, but they are within the realm of acceptable democratic debate. We've got to simply engage people in policies and listen to what they have to say as long as we're not talking about racism and violence. We can't be too uh, smug on the progressive left or whatever we might call ourselves. We have to understand that there are very many people who do not see the way the world, the world the way that we do necessarily. Michael, do you think we pay too much attention in these cases? I mean, I, I hate to use the term bad apples, but do we... Do we not hear what's being said in these protests because we're paying so much attention to all the what, things that you're talking about just now, that the, the very obvious problems with some of these groups, the grift, the, you know, the, the taking advantage of, of these things for personal gain and so forth. Uh, clearly, there's a lot of people out there who believe fundamentally in, in, their, in their reasons and their rights to be there who aren't necessarily um, out to do harm or to do damage. 
yes, we do pay too much attention to, I suppose, the so-called bad apples. Part of it is they love the attention and they attempt to attract it to themselves. And they, in fact, fight amongst themselves to get the biggest pieces of attention. But also we have a hard time imagining as Canadians that there are about a million of us who are very upset with the state. We think in Canada that this is not an issue for us. This is an American problem. This is a European problem. But we all imagine that there's some sort of consensus in Canada about what it means to be a Canadian citizen, what it means to be a good democratic subject. There's a lot of debate here. We have to acknowledge it and see some of the people who are not on the extreme right and essentially do democratic business with them. We have no choice. It's not the same as getting in bed and and doing business with a bunch of racists. It's dealing with people who have different political views who are not that far radicalized. We should ignore, I think, some of these bad apples and starve them of the attention that they so capably court. I'm speaking with Michael Kempa, the Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa. Someone who's spent the last months paying very close attention first to the blockade of Parliament Hill back in the winter, now this weekend again to a new protest that is moving in on Ottawa. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more about what to expect for the rest of this weekend, what's anticipated, and also a bit more this week about the inquiry launched into the, it was automatic, there had to be one, but the inquiry launched into the use of the Emergencies Act, the invocation of the Emergencies Act, uh, and what uh, what Professor Kempa thinks of that. We'll, we'll be back. I'm speaking with Michael Kempa, Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa. We're talking about protests planned. They've already begun uh, in Ottawa this weekend. Rolling Thunder, it's called. Uh, hundreds of vehicles, bikers expected to be in the city this week. Uh, some activity in front of the Rideau Centre today, which is right downtown uh, in Ottawa. I, gu- I guess you mentioned it earlier, Michael. I guess the concern now is that swelling on the weekend like we saw back in January. That's the main worry. How many people will show up tomorrow on Saturday. If it is more or less along the lines of what came today, and we're looking at something like about 1,000 to 2,000 people, it would be manageable. If it spikes for some strange reason back up to eight to 10,000, as it was in, in January, February, that becomes difficult for about 2,000 police officers on the ground to maintain the type of um, on-top-of-things operation that they've got going right now. There must be a lot of pressure on, on the city, on the police, on politicians too, not to see a repeat of what happened this winter? Huge amount of pressure, and they're keenly aware of it. I mean, the police chief came right out, interim chief Bell came right out and said, we know the community is watching. This is really our last opportunity to uh, regain the trust of the people of Ottawa. We cannot allow another occupation. So, I mean, apart from shutting down the central business district to uh, uncheck vehicular traffic and moving along with uh, police-assisted tow trucks for anybody who stops, there's really not much more that the police can do. They're enforcing bylaws. They're enforcing local laws. As long as they've got uh, personnel power superiority, what they used to call manpower superiority, they'll be, they'll be fine. Because, of course, as you mentioned earlier, they have the powers to do what they need to do provided that everything continues the way it has so far, which brings me back to what I want to ask you about uh, as a last question. We saw this week the inquiry launched into the use, the invocation of the Emergencies Act. I was just wondering what your impression was, because you spent so much time talking about, I mean, you were really one of the go-to people when it came to that whole episode. And and there's so many lessons to learn here. Uh, Do you think it goes far enough? Is it transparent enough? So the Emergencies Act was the least worse option for me. I was very clear. I thought where we got to by mid-February was clearly an emergency. The civil power, the ordinary policing institutions were just not capable of dealing with the situation. And you regrettably had no choice to use the Emergencies Act at that time. In the real world, following along from an emergency situation, governments will always hold information back. That's what governments do. They will say it's in the national interest to keep certain information secret. They will say it's in the national interest to maintain cabinet confidence. There is no precise legal definition of the national interest. The national interest is only what the government says it is, balanced with what the public will tolerate. So if the public wants government to release as much information as legitimately can be released, you've got to maintain pressure on the government to be forthcoming. If we let them sort of skate and we don't say too much, They'll tell us very little. 
The only information that the government should hold back now is information that relates to ongoing criminal prosecutions or legitimately connected to a national security issue such as knowledge about a terrorist organization. We might not want them to know what we know about them. Other than that, if it's embarrassing to the government, if it means the government made a mistake, too bad, release that information. I think you'll find that the public is quite tolerant of the admission of mistakes in that contest, context because many people made mistakes. The problem, the issue now is to fix it, not lay blame all over the place. Michael Kempa, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate your insight. I hope the weekend is quiet. I hope so as well. Well, as I mentioned off the top of the show, I'm heading to Vancouver this weekend to run in the easiest way you can run in the BMO Vancouver Marathon, the 50th anniversary edition of the BMO Vancouver Marathon, the quite low-key 8K through Stanley Park, which is a really nice place to run to begin with. So a really big weekend in Vancouver, crowds will be out, people are out, it's going to feel a little bit like maybe old times, one would hope. It's actually the second largest international marathon in Canada. The race was established back in 1972 with just 32 finishers. It attracts all kinds of people running for all kinds of very good causes, including my next guest, lawyer, former politician, cabinet minister, best-selling author, but tonight, runner. Jody Wilson-Raybould, thank you so much for being here tonight. Thanks for having me. I love that introduction. Runner, wow. <laughs> well, you are now. I've been I, obviously I follow you on Twitter. So so you've been, you've endured some there was one on April the twelfth that starts, you know, started off and it was nice and by the time I finished it was hailing. How has the training been going? How are you feeling? <laughs> I'm feeling good. I'm uh, I'm not running obviously until Sunday, but uh, yeah, I worked my way up to about 30K for my longest run. And um, our Vancouver weather being what it is, it was sunny when I started out on a long run. And then when I finished, it was hailing. So God love it. But it's going well. <laughs> I I think I'm in relatively good shape that I will be able to cross the finish line at the 42.2 kilometer mark. <laughs> and you, you've picked up all your stuff. So you're, you're committed. That's it, right? That's That's it. You got to go. I've, I mean, you pick- I've committed and I've put it on Twitter and other social media pictures. So there's evidence. And if I don't do it, then uh, um, shame on me. But I'm so happy that you're coming to do the 8K, Ben. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I've done absolutely no training because I was in Paris with my mom last week for her 75th birthday. So I didn't train then, although we walked a lot, but I ate a lot. Uh, and then I've been working. So I'm just hoping I can wing it. And I'm just a bit, I'm a bit older than you are. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> well, I'm, I we'll uh, we'll uh, crawl across the finish line if we have to together. So yeah, <laughs> I love I love the descriptions on the website of these runs. Mine was running through tranquil shade of cedar and hemlock in Stanley Park. I'm like, that sounds so calm and beautiful. Yours, all 26.2 miles of it, is an adventure past beaches through natural parks and along Vancouver's seawall. Apparently, 70 percent of the marathon run is shoreline views and stunning scenery. So it sounds very nice. I, I read the same thing and I took out my friend and I, we drove as much as we could the marathon route yesterday and it was very scenic. I imagine when I do it on Sunday, it won't be as lovely as it was yesterday, but it's for a good cause. As you say, I'm running for a good cause. <laughs> yeah. I want to ask you about the good cause because, you know, in, in these events, people always run for something that's close to them, close to their hearts. And in this case, uh, that's true of, of the, the funds that you're raising here it is i um this will be my third marathon and i always run them to raise money for charity this this time i'm running for alzheimer's and um the support that we've received from so many people from all over um in terms of their donations has been extraordinary and i'm so grateful for it um and i know it you know alzheimer's touches so many um people and families and for me um my uh, my mother, my grandfather had Alzheimer's for 15 years before he passed away. So I'm doing this in honor of him and in honor of so many um, individuals that have suffered with dementia and, and their family who who live with them and, and help them through it. So that's why I'm doing it. Yeah, you had a really nice, you wrote something really nice about, about your grandfather, uh, James Raymond Hindle, 
when you were describing why you were running and why you were raising money for Alzheimer's. And some of your memories of them are really, are really lovely. It's amazing because it's back, it goes back a while now, but clearly even as a teenager, those memories really stuck with you. Yeah, I, I tried to impart some of, you know, the more positive realities of, of having somebody close to you that is suffering from dementia, Alzheimer's. And my uh, my grandfather would have very lucid moments once in a while, and I benefited from, from some of those. I mean, I remember I wrote on um, the website how we used to watch television together, and he loved this show called Hogan's Heroes, and I'm 51, so I'm old enough to remember the reruns of it. But, yeah, we used to talk about it, and I remember him when we lived in Victoria, taking me to um, the Hillside Mall and getting ice cream. So some good memories of it's my It's still there. The Hillside yeah. Mall is still there, being in Victoria. I remember Hogan's Heroes, too. I used to watch it. It's very now. <laughs> it is very different. I can imagine. I didn't know it back when. Um, <laughs> you, you've, um, I mean... How is that? You, you kind of rediscovered running. You, you write that it was a couple of years ago. What, what led you to, what led you to start running again? I can tell you why I did. I, I was, I hadn't run in a long time and I lost a job and you know, you go through that kind of, ugh, and then you think I got to do something. I got to do something to clear my head. Yeah. And I just started running yeah. and it was just, that's just what happened. I started running and I thought, this is better than sitting in a pub. <laughs> this is better than a lot of other things I could be doing to try to drown my sores. There's sort of that adrenaline rush yeah. you get. So that's how why I started again. Yeah, I I mean, I'm not the exact same reason, but I transitioned, as you said, at the top of the show, I transitioned from um, um, being um, a member of parliament, which I loved. Um, and um, COVID, the COVID reality hit us a couple of years ago, and I found myself actually baking banana bread at the beginning of being like locked up in isolation and then um i decided to get out and start walking and then that gradually led into one day my body telling me it was time to start running again and like you it gave me a lot of um time to think about things and and the runner's high and clarity and through running um i was able to write a lot and yeah it's kind of stuck with me and my body remembered um the marathons that I did some 15 and more years ago. So I actually love it now. And I imagine if I'm able, when I cross the finish line, I imagine I will continue to, to run on a regular basis because it does give me that, um, it makes me very healthy and uh, gives me that um, clarity of thought, which I really value. Is it different running now than, than when you were younger? Do you, did you feel, I mean, I, for me, it was different. It felt like I did it for different reasons or I felt different doing it. It wasn't sort of like just another thing on the list that I had to be good at. It was more something that was actually kind of tranquil and enjoyable. Well, for me right now, it's, it's, it's more tranquil and enjoyable. When I was younger, when my body recovered a lot more quickly, it was, I was always wanting to, to better my time. Now I'm going to be slow and steady, I hope anyway, and listen to some music as I, as I do it. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I said to myself when I turned 50, which is when I signed up for the 50th BMO marathon, that I would be in shape when I turned uh, half a century. And I accomplished that. So I'm proud of it. And I uh, um, want to continue to to live that healthy lifestyle. It makes, uh, it makes me feel a lot better, <laughs> for sure. We wanted to ask you, because we were talking about it tonight. I have some really eclectic things. Actually, one of the only reasons I really love running is so I can listen to music. What do you listen to? What are your What are your go-to tunes when you're out there? Oh, my gosh. A whole bunch of different things. I love listening to piano music. George Winston is one of my favorites. Um, really? But this is going to sound a bit bizarre. I yeah. like to listen to slow um, ballads kind of going back to my high school years in the 1980s the slower right. the music the memories flood in from my you know experiences over the years and it just takes me there and then I just get lost in thought and, and somehow, somehow I, I get lost in the fact that I'm actually running mile after mile so that's kind of what I listen to Elton John I right. love him Billy Joel Elton John Billy Joel yeah. Yeah, I was the, yeah I was remembering all those songs from you know the 84, 85 little Billy Ocean in there maybe yeah. yeah, absolutely. And then you have to have some kick, some kick, you know, beats, like really fast beats, like interspersed, but mostly soft, kind of tranquil stuff is what I listen to. I know it's kind of boring, but I like it. No, it's it's interesting what, what gets people uh, what gets people motivated. You know, I think whatever you think works for you is what you need. You just need to put yourself in that right space. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I, yeah. 
Well, I can't. I mean, I, I was. I wanted to ask you a bit about about your uh, about your new. You've been writing. You mentioned. I want to ask you a bit about a book you have coming out at the end of the year. Uh, we'll just mm-hmm. jump away for a few minutes and then come back. Come right back. I'll ask you about that. I'm speaking with Jody Wilson Raybould. We're talking running tonight because uh, <laughs> Jody Jody will be running the uh, the marathon on Sunday, the 50th BMO Vancouver Marathon. We tried to dig up some Billy Joel for you. I don't know if you're already running I, to it. <laughs> I love it. Thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. We had to stop playing mine because mine are sort of all obscure 80s dance records. I don't don't ask. Oh. So after a while, I think we're going to start driving listeners away. Um, I noticed you, you have a new book coming out in, in, in the fall uh, about reconciliation. So this is some of the writing you've been doing while you haven't been running. Yeah, I, um, yeah, I have a new book coming out in November of, of year um it's it's uh, entitled true reconciliation how to be a force for change so yeah i've been um not only writing but yeah running so that's kind of been occupying my time but yeah, i'm really excited about it it's um uh essentially a practical guide to answer the question that i'm asked more than any other question um throughout my my time in and public life about how can i um or what can i do to advance reconciliation so I think to to answer that question based on my experience both as a former regional chief as a minister an MP and um, as a proud indigenous person who's been advocating for the advancement of indigenous rights and implementation for decades so yeah I'm excited about it was it a different kind of process than writing your than writing the last book? It must have been because you know, I obviously I read read your last book, but was it it uh, must have been a different process in terms of just trying to put the words down, try to figure out a narrative how you wanted to tell. Yeah, I mean it's um, a, a different process for sure. Um, I mean we talked about COVID earlier and how it gave me time to to run. Um, it, I mean all the very public. Um, a reality that um, transpired for me in moving out of, of government, you know, being able to sit back and reflect about it um, enabled me to write Indian in the cabinet and tell of my experience in, in government. And this book is, I'd say it's a collaboration. I mean, I've had the fortune to work with so many people um, in the various um, positions that I've been fortunate enough to hold. And um, this is um, something that's kind of writing itself in that um, the work that Indigenous peoples have been doing to effect true reconciliation has been going on for a long time. Um, And what I seek to do is to retell the history of this country for one, um, not simply from a one-sided perspective, but tell the true history of of Canada through the voices of Indigenous people. Um, But also, as I said, I've had the fortune of working with many people over the years and and putting forward practical solutions that um, Indigenous peoples have been putting forward and, um, you know, um, elevating and and supporting and and celebrating Canadians who more than ever um, in, in my time as an Indigenous leader um, are wanting to see change, not just performative reconciliation, which we're seeing more and more of right now, but actual true reconciliation that will transform the lives of Indigenous peoples and Canadians generally. And um, for me, that's inspiring that Canadians, probably in a great degree because of the revelations of the mass graves at residential schools and so many other realities, but uh, want to be involved in 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 this important work, which I think is one of the biggest public policy issues facing our country. So I hope that, you know, this this book contributes towards that or at least gives people some ideas of what they can continue to do, ideas for individuals, organizations and, and certainly governments. I imagine this was something that you felt the timing was right, that the we, people were ready to hear not only what you had to say, but also ready to understand what you had to say as well. Yeah, I think that's right. And um, I mean, more than ever with the reality of the, of the residential schools and, and um, the findings that have come more to light for so many people and, and, and people really wanting to, to understand the true history and what they can do um, and how they can be, whether one calls oneself an agent of change or um, calls oneself an in-betweener, which I and um, I'm a really good friend of mine like to call people how we can bridge between 
um, different worlds between Indigenous and, and non-Indigenous communities and how we can act to create that change, whether that be through changing laws and policies or doing individual acts um, as um, people or within organizations. There's a lot of different um, things that we can do. Um, and we have great examples. And I look to in this book to celebrate those examples, but also to point out or debunk a lot of the myths that are out there or to call out individuals that say this is too complicated or too hard. Um, you know, true reconciliation with Indigenous peoples in this country is long overdue. And and uh, when we um, move forward um, together and recognize our interdependency, I think uh, we as a country will do far better. It certainly sounds like an inter- an interesting project if it's both sort of guide and history and myth busting. Yeah, I look forward to seeing it. So November, November of this year. In November the 8th, uh, in in stores near you, yeah. I'll be talking about uh, it more in, in the lead up, but I'm excited about it. Lots of work to do uh, before then, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, just before I let you go, if we get, are you, so what are your plans for the next 48 hours that are you just going to put your feet up and, and save all your energy? Cause that's what I'm planning on doing. Although I have to get to Vancouver, but uh, what are your plans for yeah. between now and Sunday morning? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to do a bit of writing tomorrow, but I am going to be very low key. I'm not going to run or anything like that. And I'm going to eat, um, try and eat a lot of carbs and just relax and, uh, you know, look forward to, to Sunday coming and I'm I'm so grateful to you Ben for signing up and being part of our our team and and running the 8K and for giving me the opportunity to talk to to your audience and you know put a pitch in for um, people if they are so inclined to to donate to to Alzheimer's it's a really worthwhile cause and you can go onto the BC Alzheimer's website and and look up sponsor an event and you'll find uh, my name and our team. So I would yeah. very much appreciate any support that we could have. Yeah, you've almost reached your goal. I saw uh, Dia is the name of the team, by the way. Which uh, I, I won't. I won't. I'll let you explain what it means. Um, I, I read it, but I'll let you, you can explain what it means if you yeah. like. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, I'm Kwakwakiwak, and our language is Kwakwala. In our language, um, Dia or Dia means um, dear one, um, beloved, essentially, and that's what my my grandfather was to me, and that's. That's why I'm running to support those um, people that uh, that need our support. So yeah, Team Dia, um, big purple hearts, and uh, um, there's about ten of us that are running and walking, and some are doing virtual runs um, in support. So I'm really excited. We I set a goal of twenty five thousand and fifty dollars, and we're about twenty two thousand. So I'm really happy that we're almost at the goal, and I'm determined to get there. <laughs> Jody Wilson-Raybould, I look forward to seeing you on Sunday. Best of luck if I don't. And uh, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thanks so much, Ben. Thanks for having me. Well, we found out some news this week, today actually, that really isn't that surprising. There was an exclusive Global News Ipsos poll that shows that 63% of Canadian non-home owners have given up on ever owning a home. In fact, The highest numbers are in BC, that's not surprising, 74%, Quebec 72%, Ontario 62%. But really, I mean, those are alarming stats. To think that a whole swath of your population, 63% who don't own a home, think they never will. So we wanted to find out more about this. Who better to ask than Paul Kershaw? He's a professor at the University of British Columbia's School of Population and Public Health. He's also the founder of Generation Squeeze that looks into these issues about generations, specifically younger Canadians, who feel like the property ladder has been rolled up and they will never get on the first rung. Paul Kershaw, thank you so much for your time tonight. It's my pleasure. I suppose uh, surveys like this, or at least the results of surveys like this, that show such an incredible amount of, let's call it despondency amongst non-homeowners, shouldn't be surprising. But somehow, every time I see stats like, you know, Eight out of 10 Canadians who don't own a home don't think they ever will. It's jarring. I find it jarring. Well, I'm glad you do find it jarring because I think it is one of the kinds of stats that really does point to a serious deterioration of the standard of living in this country for a younger demographic. And I emphasize that pace, or I should also add for a newcomer of any age, 
But I, w- I want to insist tonight that people recognize that this hardship that we're imposing, in particular on a younger demographic, seeing their hard work not pay off, not, not feel like it could actually get them into secure housing, maybe even as an owner, that's happening because the other side of the for sale side and relentless increases in home prices is rising wealth for homeowners like me. So I live in the burbs of Metro Vancouver and Pitt Meadows. And last year I was told that my home went up by half a million dollars while I slept or while I watch TV. And I just want to say, like, I work hard as a professor. I want to be remunerated well for that. I've been a prof for 17 years at UBC. I'm lucky. I have a defined contribution pension. I pay into it. My employer does. And over the last 17 years, I've barely accumulated in my pension half a million dollars. But last year alone, while I slept, my home gave that to me. We can't only talk about how we are harming younger people right now who can't get into the housing market if we don't have the harder conversation with a range of existing homeowners about what's hurting younger folks is often because we're tolerating it benefiting us. And that's the tension that I want to raise with people more and more. I should point out that it's 63% across the country, but as high as 74% in BC, 72% in Quebec, where people who don't own homes think they won't. You know, I lived in London for a while and we used to laugh because there were always, and this is, you know, eight, seven, eight, ten years ago, there are always articles about how if you lived in London and you owned property, your house made more money than you did. And that was true for most people. And then one day I came back to this country and it was true here too. Um, You've called this a cultural problem as much as anything else. How does one solve a cultural problem like this one? Well, I didn't ease into it in our conversation already, man. That was the wrong way. But I, I went right at it right directly. You did. I, I feel like, you know, you could ask me, I'm a policy professor. So you could ask me, what do I think about the foreign buyers moratorium? Or what do I think about rent to own schemes or accelerator funds or, or, you know, firing local city gatekeepers so we build more? So I could talk to you about all of those things. But at the end of the day, we don't have any political party, provincially or federally, that is politically courageous enough to say, you know what? We don't want home prices to rise anymore. And we don't want them to rise for years so that earnings have a chance to catch up. And if we don't have that clarity of purpose in our world of politics, we have nothing because we will have a range of policies that some work towards that goal, some don't. And then you might say, oh, well, then it's the problem of politicians. And I want to push back on that. I want to say politicians are responding to where the cultural mood is in Canada. We haven't created as citizens political cover for our politicians to be brave enough to respond to the insanity of our housing system. Because you, you only think the housing system is insane if it's designed to produce affordability for people trying to make homes. It's clearly not doing that. But really, we should recognize that the housing system is ultimately producing a great deal of wealth for homeowners. It seems like that's its purpose. And we need to disrupt that. We need to say, no, that's not what we want as the purpose for our housing system. And it's not just the mean-spirited developer who doesn't care about the community or the NIMBY who doesn't want rental and doesn't care about the community or the money launderer or the foreign buyer. It's actually a range of everyday Canadians who have become culturally addicted to the idea that we can count on high and rising home prices as we bank for our future savings and retirement. And it's been pointed out, I know Pierre Apoliev was was targeted by this perhaps unfairly because he's certainly not alone uh, in owning rental. So those who already have, not only do they already have a roof over their heads, they can also afford to invest, to buy other properties and then rent them out. So it becomes this incredibly, this circle of, 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 of the wealthy just getting wealthier to some extent. Uh, and, and you can't blame people for doing it. I mean, it makes sense within the way the, the system works. But I guess what you're saying is that the system isn't working. That's the problem. Well, the system is working if giving good wealth returns to existing owners is the goal. The system is working terribly if the goal is for housing to be affordable places to call home. And, and we shouldn't pick on Pierre Polyev on this no, issue because, no. because he's also an, an owner of a rental property. We know that that's the case also for, I think it's a third of the federal government cabinet right now. And for what it's worth, I believe it's one in six Canadian uh, homeowners own multiple properties. We have, again, this is the cultural reality. We have made it such that 
people treat housing not just as their place to call home, but often as a relatively tax-sheltered way to get rich. And um, that's especially in terms of principal residences. So I have been someone who has said, hey, I'm not, I'm not brave enough to say we should get rid of the capital gains exemption on principal residences entirely. But I do think that the 10% or so of Canadians living in the most valuable principal residences, myself included, could be uh, expected to contribute slightly more in taxation each here in order to show allegiance to the Canadian dream that a good home should be in reach for what hard work can earn. And right now we have broken allegiance with that dream, which is why you get the despondency amongst so many people who are currently not in the housing system as owners. We often hear arguments about high interest rates. I understand, of course, in the 80s that interest rates were high. I remember when uh, my, my mom bought her first home back in the 80s and interest rates were high. Uh, but you came up, you have a very interesting stat about just how long it takes the average worker now to save up for a down payment compared to the 1970s. Say so it, is, it is a very revealing number. Yeah, so I tend to go back to the mid 1970s because that's when um, you know the majority of baby boomers were starting out as young adults. It's also when my mom was starting out in the housing market, and uh, we know back then it took a typical young person five years of full time work to save a twenty percent down payment on an average priced home, and an average priced home back then was more often a home with a yard. But if you flash forward to today and you think about the same typical young adult, 25 to 34 year old, across the country, they would need to work 17 years to save that 20% down payment on an average priced home. And the average priced home now is more often a condo with a balcony. Uh, In Ontario and BC, it's 22 years. In Metro Vancouver and the GTA, it is a whopping 27 years. So just think about what that reveals about how much hard work now doesn't pay off by comparison with the past in terms of our ability to save for what is our major cost of living. That goes back to that observation I made earlier that we have a serious deterioration in the standard of living for younger Canadians. The middle class is being hollowed out. We often only talk about it being hollowed out in one way. It's getting worse for some people. It's getting worse for younger people, newcomers of any age, because there's a mismatch between what we can earn for full-time work and our major cost of living. But it's hollowing out also for an older demographic, because when they got into the housing market some decades ago, the wealth that housing has created for them pushes them closer and closer into what we should describe as affluent. Indeed, you you don't need much more than a million bucks in wealth to be in the global 1%. Housing has done that regularly uh, for many people in cities across this country, not just in Vancouver and Toronto. Go look in Hamilton and Kelowna and a range of places in Halifax. I'm speaking with Paul Kershaw, a professor in the University of British Columbia's School of Population and Public Health, founder of Generation Squeeze. We're talking about a survey out today, a Global News Ipsos survey that shows 63% of non-homeowners in this country have, quote, given up on ever owning a home. When we come back, uh, a little bit more just about how do you get how do you get people to vote against their interests if they own homes? Um how do you convince them that this is a good idea, that the inequity is not going to work in the long run? Uh, and what has the government done of late, at least in the federal budget, to try to address some of these issues? Will it work? Uh, that's after. I'm speaking with Paul Kershaw, a professor in the University of British Columbia's School of Population and Public Health, founder of Generation Squeeze. We're talking about a new Global News Ipsos survey today, perhaps not surprisingly, that shows 63% of non-homeowners in this country have, quote, given up on ever owning a home. The highest number is not surprisingly again, 74% in BC, 62% in Ontario, 72% though in Quebec as well, where of course housing prices have gone up a lot of late. Uh, Paul, how do you convince, because it's sort of the dirty secret if you do own a home um, and you're looking at property values and thinking, maybe I want a bigger home. So I'm hoping the value of this house continues to rise so I can take another step up that property ladder. How do you convince people that rolling the property ladder back out so that people can actually get back on it is probably best in the long run for all of us? It's a really great question. We've been exploring this more and more on on the Gen Squeeze podcast called Hard Truths. And when we talk about it more and more, we actually return to this theme that's really lovely, love. At the intergenerational table, when you next have families meeting for whatever holiday people celebrate, you're going to have an older demographic that will love the kids and grandchildren around the table. 
And so there are generational tensions in our housing system, as there are class tensions and race tensions and sex tensions when we think about a range of systemic issues. But the beautiful thing about trying to fix our broken intergenerational system is that we can start from a place of love because we know that grandmothers and grandfathers want the best by their kids and grandchildren. And so we need that demographic to join forces with a younger demographic to say, you know what? No more. We, no more will we have housing be more than, you know, first and foremost, a place to call home. If someone takes a mortgage out and they want to pay their mortgage off and that's how they're going to build equity, well, that's like treating your mortgage as a piggy bank and that's a great saving strategy. But if you're counting on homes, your homes to go up by 50, 60, 70, 100, 200%, we just can't want that anymore. If you love the younger people in your lives and you want housing to be in reach for people who follow in our footsteps. And at the same time, this is such a hard message for the younger demographic that often Jen squeezes speaking up for. We need younger Canadians to really be part of the solution and say, we know how hard it is to try and break into this housing market. And so once people do, and they borrow obscenely large sums of money that probably make them really frightened with the amount of debt that they're getting on, they're like, if only now my equity will go up. So my debt to uh, equity level doesn't look so bad, but we've got to say, no, 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 please don't want that. Polling suggests you do, but you can't. You know how hard it is to break into the system. You've got to be part of the solution now so that it doesn't get worse for those who follow in your footsteps. And that's a particularly hard message to sell. So I like to start with the love of grandparents. That I think we can get grandparents on more. People who own homes are much more optimistic about the future. And also more than two-thirds of Canadians now think that owning a home is only for the rich. And I thought that was a really, I mean, there's a lot of that, a lot of loaded in that question, but that's a really interesting perception because it, it sort of defeats the whole idea of what homeownership was supposed to be about in this country. The generational dynamics around housing are really transforming class dynamics in Canada, especially in some of the bigger cities around the country, because, you know, back in the day, you had the working class bus driver nurse get into housing uh, and that was, you know, the, that was typically in reach for hard full-time work. But, you know, a working class person could do that. Now that working class person who bought several decades ago has millions in equity in a lot of our cities, they're no longer the, that working class. They may think of themselves that way, but they now are actually very affluent. And the young lawyer who makes six figures starting out as they're trying to become partners somewhere, but in, you know, some of our bigger urban areas can't afford to rent a place with more than two bedrooms. So I do think that we are transforming class dynamics because we have lost control of home prices. And this is another one of the hard truths that we need to be talking about. Those who had the lottery of timing by being adults a few decades ago, that has generated an opportunity for wealth accumulation and easy money while we sleep, watch TV and clean our dishes. I'm included in this. I'm sort of, I'm 47. Um, you know, that is making me more affluent and then making others who by their income you think might be affluent with a lesser standard of living. Politicians are acutely aware of this. I know. Um, are there, are there, do you see answers out there? Do you see, and what should we, we be leery of when it comes to the promises made? Because the bigger problem it is, obviously the more promises we're going to hear, the more simple solutions we're going to be asked yeah. to perhaps swallow. This comes back to a comment we made before the break around the level of political bravery we have at this moment. And it's clear, like I take some pride in the Gen Squeeze and other groups have really got housing on the political radar. We even now have, uh, you know, Pierre Polyev running for the conservative leadership. We have our deputy prime minister. They're all talking about the intergenerational injustices of what we see. That's Gen Squeeze 101 discourse. So like we're having influence. I'm pleased about that. But what we haven't yet done is help those politicians have the harder conversation. They'll go look at the easy villains, the money launderer, the foreign buyer, the speculator, the NIMBY, the quote unquote local government gatekeeper. And you, they go after those targets because it never asks voters to think about how might we be implicated. But systems sustain themselves over time, including our housing system and what I like to call this dysfunctional intergenerational system. They sustain themselves over time because a majority of actors in the system make choices that reinforce feedback loops that sustain it over time. And so we have in Canada people hoping home prices will rise. You tend to actually get incentivized to do that the moment you become a homeowner. Uh, 
And that's the cultural piece that we so need to disrupt. And we, we desperately need to make it politically safe for politicians to say that can't be our cultural attitude any longer. That is actually the heart, the root cause of the problem. And so before I want to go punish politicians for not being brave enough, I think we get the politics we often deserve. And I want to ask of Canadians, those listening here tonight, how can we voice the following idea to restore affordability for all? We minimally need home prices to stall so that earnings can catch up. And in some recent polling we did, we found that 70% of Canadians support that idea. That is a lot of political cover for politicians to act bravely. We need to make sure that we're showing that political cover exists. And then, and I believe only then, will we truly start to address what is dysfunctional about our housing system. Paul Kershaw, as always, thank you so much for your time tonight. My pleasure. Have a great evening. I was really curious, you know, having failed on that assault in Kiev, uh, and now with Russia trying to sort of make up for lost ground or, or changing the focus of their war in Ukraine to the east, I was really interested to find out what's going on inside Russia. This is meant to be one of the most powerful militaries in the world. They've been essentially defeated or pushed back by a smaller neighbor, much to their surprise, obviously, because they had planned on winning this quickly. And so now they're trying to shift gears and so on. And I was really curious, what's going on inside Russia? What's going on within the security services? So joining me now is Andrei Soldatov. He's a non-resident senior fellow with the Center for European Policy Analysis. He's also a Russian investigative journalist and co-founder and editor of Agentura.ru, a watchdog of the Russian secret services activities. He's been covering security services and terrorism issues since 1999, and he's also the co-author of a recent article called Vicious Blame Game Erupts Among Russia's Security Forces. So I wanted to know more. To tell us all about it, joining me now is Andrei Soldatov. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Uh, thank you for having me. It's such an interesting insight that you have inside what's going on within Russia's security services, uh, because one can only imagine the sort of... Uh, how disconcerting it's been for them to perform so badly so far in this war in Ukraine. What is going on? How much blame is going on right now within the upper echelons of the Russian security services? Yes, it is, uh, it is a very interesting development and, and actually a very interesting story right from the beginning. Uh, well, because it was so unprecedented on so many levels. This war started with Vladimir Putin attacking his own people. Uh, as you probably remember, uh, the war was basically announced at the meeting of the Security Council. And at that very meeting, Vladimir Putin decided to attack his chief of the Foreign Intelligence Agency, uh, Sergei Narushkin, uh, basically humiliating him uh, in front of the members of the Security Council, and this meeting was also aired on the Russian television. So everybody watched it, and it was absolutely like unprecedented. We never see Vladimir Putin before attacking security services and uh, and generals of uh, of the security services. When the war started, lots of people inside of the security services got absolutely confused because what they envisaged was absolutely different from what uh, happened the very first day of the war. Uh, my contacts inside, and especially inside of the FSB, the Federal Security uh, Service, which is a domestic agency, but they, uh, this agency also has um, uh, um, a task to uh, control things in the former Soviet Union, meaning espionage operations in countries like Ukraine and Belarus and uh, Central Asian states. And uh, people inside told me that they expected something like the operation of NATO in 1999 in Serbia. Then uh, when a series of airstrikes hit Belgrade and finally there was a change of, of the regime. But what we got was absolutely different from that. Exactly. I mean, and one would imagine, I, I guess that came as a surprise. Where do you think 
uh, in all this? Where did the fault lie? How could they have been so unaware of how this would unfold in the early days in Kiev? Well, I think that here we have two narratives. One is that uh, Putin was misinformed by his spies, by by his department of the FSB. So they presented him with a wrong picture uh, about the political situation in Ukraine. And mostly because uh, everybody knows that Putin has a very, and had very strong opinions about Ukraine. So it was really risky to challenge him on Ukraine and say something which might contradict his, uh, his ideas about Ukraine. On the other hand, there is a, there is a second narrative which basically says that FS, the FSB, they sort of they try to prepare some scenarios about what might happen in Ukraine if, say, uh, Putin decides to uh, use aviation, so mostly uh, well, airstrikes uh, for weeks and weeks, and only after that, some political crisis might unfold in Kiev, and that would be a moment to to try to change something on the ground, uh, specifically in Kiev, and that for some mysterious reason, and I don't know the answer, Putin changed this plan and said and well, ordered it actually his troops to attack immediately. Which, to be honest, militarily speaking, doesn't make any sense. The usual tactics is always to stop the fire strikes and to wait for some weeks until the moment that you feel that the national infrastructure is weak enough and the armed forces of your enemy uh, are weakened enough. And only after that, uh, you send your tanks in. Putin did something completely different. He sent his tanks immediately after he started uh, airstrikes. we've read, and this is mostly from Western sources, of course, we've read that Putin is, in fact, controlling or at least dictating what's going on in this war. And one would imagine that can't be a particularly good idea. Is it causing a lot of disharmony within the security services in Russia? And, And if it is, we really haven't seen much evidence of it, at least on this side of the narrative. Yes, it looks like Vladimir Putin wanted to be uh, in control of everything, uh, uh, if, even including the things on and in in Ukraine. I mean, the way the military operation was conducted, and that was the biggest question everybody had uh, during the first and part of the second month of the war: why we didn't see a military commander from the Russian side who was in charge of the situation on the battlefield. Why we saw only statements and um, well, figures in Moscow. You cannot, uh, well, militarily speaking, uh, control and, uh, well, I don't know, run an operation, a military operation from Moscow if you have this operation uh, in, in Ukraine because it's a very long distance and you need to have somebody, some general, to be in charge of the situation, of the local situation, of the situation on the battlefield. And only after, as far as I remember, 40, 45 days after the war, Putin finally appointed a general to be in charge of the situation on the battlefield. You've spoken about the reaction. So so the opening phase of this military operation, this invasion, is a failure. Uh, there's then a recalibrating of, of objectives uh, back towards the Donbass and the east, the south, this, you know, the famous land bridge to Crimea, perhaps as far uh, as far as Transnistria. Uh, how was that received by the military when Putin announced that there would be new objectives in this war and the original objectives were going to be scrapped? Well, it looks like they're really unhappy with this uh, change of uh, strategy. And uh, I'm talking not only about my contacts and the security services or, or the military. The big thing now uh, in Moscow uh, is is Telegram because Telegram is a social media and provides you with the option uh, to read the so-called channels. And lots of people use these Telegram channels to uh, not only to chat but to um, uh, to get information about what is going on. And many of these channels are run by by the military. Uh, so just yesterday, one of the most uh, prominent and popular 
uh, channels, which is known to be very close to the military, uh, conducted a poll, and then we are talking about thousands of thousands of people. And the question was, what do you think about, how do you feel about the objectives of the war? What should be the objective? What, would, what should be the final uh, result of the war? And uh, I checked it, and it was quite surprising that, uh, let me open it, is it says that 24% uh, want the Russian troops to come to the border with Poland, meaning the complete occupation of Ukraine. 33% uh, want a complete capitulation of Ukraine, and only 6% uh, wanted an, uh, a liberation of, of the Donbass region. So, so popular support in Russia clearly is for something far more extensive than what's on the table right now. Yes, uh, they actually they believe that the stakes are really high. They believe that they are facing in Ukraine not only a Ukrainian army, which is completely mobilized, uh, and the Russian army is still a peacetime army. We didn't have a, a mobilization in the country. And it's not only about Ukrainian army, as I said, but it's also about the weaponry uh, supplied by the West. Uh, so if you have that and you, and you have the peacetime Russian army and they still believe that they have some restraints, for instance, they are told by the political leadership not to uh, conduct massive airstrikes, they believe they are losing because of that. And we are asking for more. Uh, they actually, what they want, they want an all-out all war. I'm speaking with Andrei Soldatov. He's a non-resident senior fellow with the Center for European Policy Analysis. Andrei is also a Russian investigative journalist and co-founder and editor of Agentura.ru, a watchdog of the Russian secret services activities. After this, we'll talk more about if the army is pushing or the military is pushing for something bigger and broader in Ukraine. Uh, what could that mean? What could that lead to? We'll be back with that. I'm speaking with Andrei Soldatov, a non-resident senior fellow with the Center for European Policy Analysis in the U.S. Andrei is a Russian investigative journalist, a co-founder and editor of Agentura.ru, a watchdog of the Russian secret services activities. We've been talking about uh, the dismay within the Russian military, certainly about how things have gone in Ukraine, but also with the limited scope now of activities in Ukraine. In other words, this idea of trying to focus only on the Donbass, the east and the south, and not the country as a whole. Uh, Andrei, what kind situation does that create then if you have uh, a civilian leader, essentially Vladimir Putin, and a military unhappy with the scope of a war and essentially having to live through the humiliation of, as far as we can tell, losing this war so far? Well, it is uh, a very interesting and again, a quite unprecedented situation because, say, back in 2014, when we saw the annexation of Crimea, well, the military, uh, the army, and the security services were on the same page with Putin. They completely supported him uh, in his decision to invade Crimea. They also were happy with the way it was done. It was a harmony, to be honest. Now it feels completely different. They might support the idea of, of the war, and they basically, and they said that they want a bigger war, but they are, they are they're now they're asking questions about Putin. What is quite interesting is that they never criticize Sergei Shoigu, he's a minister of defense, which is quite surprising for me because we all know that uh, Sergei Shoigu has no military education, no military experience. Uh, he's a public face of the war. But the way the military performed uh, well, doesn't reflect that he, he, that he became a big military commander. Nevertheless, the military are still very supportive of him. Uh, they're asking questions mostly about spies, and that might reflect the old field between the military and the security services. And also they're creating a distance between them and Vladimir Putin, which is something new. Is this, I mean, we've had lots of different people opining about what sort of threats Vladimir Putin may face from the inside and most often dismiss uh, any threats from either uh, the security services or the oligarchs. Is this a dangerous situation then for Vladimir Putin if you're starting to see a separation with the security services? I would say no yet. Uh, not yet. Uh, because right now, uh, well, the big objective to fight this war 
seems to be uniting uh, people in the country, including people in the military. And they still believe that we need to be supportive of the president because we are facing such a formidable enemy, because we really believe that we are fighting not only uh, the Ukrainian army, but we are fighting NATO. Uh, and, but things might change, say, in a few months, because we do not see yet uh, big uh, effects of the economic sanctions. It might happen maybe in three months' time, maybe in two months' time, but not, it's not yet there. Uh, that's one thing. The other thing is that uh, for Vladimir Putin, what was com- always paramount is his control over Russian regions because the country is so huge. And he always was extremely sensitive about any sign of dissent in Russian regions. He believed that everything should be controlled from Moscow and it would be, and it should be really like uh, uh, the real control. Not right. some sort of uh, centralized control, control, right? Like really, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and that, that is why we have this notion of the vertical of power, meaning that everything is uh, is, is is run from from one center, from Moscow. But if you have economic sanctions and you, if you have, as a result, you have economic problems, that might change the situation in in the regions. But I'm very skeptical that the military might present a big change for him because the tradition, to be honest, is against it. Russian military were never really good at uh, plotting, organizing coup d'etat, conspiring. They are not like like the military in the Middle East or Latin America. What could this mean then? Because we've been reading a lot, obviously, about uh, issues like limited nuclear strikes, for instance, using nuclear weapons if things continue to go badly. Uh, Do you think that's something, is that a legitimate concern now that that the military will begin pushing Putin to be more aggressive if they continue to not achieve any gains in, in Ukraine? That is my concern as well, to be honest. The problem here is that if you try to think from their point of view, they believe that they picked up a fight with uh, with NATO, but in this fight, they are not hurting NATO. They're taking hit from NATO on the territory of Ukraine. So actually they are involved in this fighting with uh, uh, with, uh, with people who are still quite close to the Russians. But, I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not Europe. It's not, it's not the United States. And it means that you are, you are in a war with the enemy, which is, uh, which, is, uh, which is able to attack you, but you are not in position to counterattack. You're attacking only the Ukrainian army. And it sounds for them absolutely um, unacceptable. So they want to, to make something drastic, something big. And I'm, to be honest, that is why I'm, I'm really concerned not only about the possibility of a, of a tactical nuclear attack, but also about other countries. Because if, if you think that you are already in the fight with NATO, why not to attack somewhere when it actually hurt, like the Baltics or Romania, for instance, and some other countries? And you've been seeing a change in the rhetoric, I imagine, over the last 60-some-odd days. Uh, at least we've been seeing it from Russian state television, that, that the, the rhetoric is getting hotter. Yes, absolutely. And it, again, it goes uh, in these two directions. On the one hand, we are talking increasingly about the possibility of a nuclear attack, but also that we had at least one statement from, uh, from a military, uh, from this general Minikhanov, Minik- uh, excuse me, his name is um, um, Rostam Minikhanov, and uh, who basically said that uh, now we are entering the second phase of the war and our objective is to go uh, as far as Transnistria, which is another country, it's Moldova. Uh, and that is a clear escalation. Andre Sodatov, thank you so much for your insight on this on this subject. I hope to speak to you again. Thank you, Ben.